I heard once describe about Father's Day. It's like Mother's Day, only much less expensive. Uh, and, and we want to... We, We'd like to endorse that sentiment this morning at sunrise. We do not have, unlike Mother's Day, no flowers, gifts, carnations for you dads. Uh, basically, we just want to honor you and, and thank you. And I, but I, we do have a sermon for you this morning. So you guys get the benefit of a sermon, and I'm grateful you're sitting down for this. So uh, last Sunday, we prayed for fathers. Uh, specifically, you may remember, we prayed for fathers of at-risk youth. And after we did that, sort of during the week, it, it hit me. Um, fathers themselves are at risk, aren't they? They're at risk of withdrawing from, from just kind of putting aside responsibilities or from leaving altogether, as, as some of you I know have sadly experienced. Um, but they're also at risk for, for getting overwhelmed, for, for not getting the kind of support that they need. And, and so it's in that spirit this morning, as I felt like the spirit leading me away from, from Titus, we're going to take a break from that, that I wanted to preach a couple messages to you this week and next. And these are messages I believe the Holy Spirit wants to use, not only for dads, but also those who are not fathers, because you one day may be a father. And many of you, all of you know fathers, and you can pray some of these principles and some of this vision for being a biblical father into their lives. And not just that, some of you might be a kind of father in that you've taken responsibility for the growth of someone else in your life. You've been a kind of spiritual parent in some way, to someone in your life. And on Sundays, we've been reading through the Apostle Paul's letter to a young man named Titus. And at the very beginning of that letter, he addresses, he addresses Titus as my true child in the faith. And for him, he's taking a lot of responsibility, but, but in one sense, any responsibility you're taking for someone else's spiritual growth, this can be addressed to you as well. Now, I have to acknowledge that it's a real winner of a sermon title this morning. Uh, nine lessons from fatherhood done poorly could be put in a more encouraging way, like done well. And we're going to do that next week. We're going to look at fatherhood done well. But not only should we learn from negative examples in our lives, we have to, guys. We've got to learn from negative examples in our life. A couple reasons. Many of us have only had the negative example of a father. And we must learn and grow from that experience, or else we're going to be probably destined to repeat it. But also, if we're going to learn from the Bible, especially from the Old Testament, it'll largely be from negative examples. Uh, Paul, Apostle Paul in the New Testament, is talking to God's people in, in Corinth, and he's sharing about how Moses was leading God's people in the wilderness, and God's people kept rebelling. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11. It'll be up here on the screen. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we are at the end of the ages, a time between Christ's coming and his return. And what's written down for us in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, is written for our instruction. Even many negative examples, including this morning, 
our story this morning, we're going to observe a father fail to learn from an up-close and negative example of another father. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's going to be on page 195. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to get right to work this morning as we learn from the lives of two dads. Our two dads this morning are Eli and Samuel. And we're going to get ready to flip through your Bible this morning. We're going to try to cover this, this story, which goes over a few chapters here. Um, lesson number one that we can learn from fatherhood done poorly is that you cannot replace your baby. You cannot replace your baby. Not only every dad, but every person has, a, has kind of a baby, quote-unquote, in their life. Uh, you might call it this lovingly, playfully, that's kind of my thing, that's my baby. And like a real baby, it requires TLC, right? Tender loving care. We love it, we care for it. But unlike a real baby, it makes noise only when you want it to make noise, right? Like the, the, the car engine of a car that you love, right? A boat that you rev up, a guitar that you strum and play. These things are things you call, man, that's my baby right there. And men, you know, you might have one of these. It might not be a thing. It could be a special project or portfolio at work, an account that you just care for. And that's my baby. That's my case. That's my thing. It may even be a person, a protege, or someone in whom you take special interest, just as a man named Eli once did. He was the high priest of God's people, Eli. And he was in the tabernacle one day doing his priestly duties, and he observes a woman walk in. This woman's name is Hannah. Hannah wanted more than anything to bear a child, specifically bear a son. Up to this point, she couldn't in her life. And she prays. And as she prays, she says, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you for service. In other words, to be a kind of priest, also like Eli, in the tabernacle, serving away from her. So Eli, he kind of listens in. First, he thinks she's been drinking. (laughs) Then he recognizes, oh my goodness, this woman's praying. And he confirms to her, woman, your, your, your prayer has been heard. So she goes home, she delivers a baby boy, returns with her husband, Alkanah, And they lend him to the Lord. She followed through with her commitment to give this boy over to be a priest at the tabernacle. Let's see what happens here, starting in chapter 2, verse 11. So they dedicate this boy Samuel. Elkanah went home to Ramah. And this boy, he ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now skip to verse 18, if you would. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. That, this ephod was what the priest would wear, this, this elaborate garment when he was ministering before the Lord. Now skip all the way, if you would, to uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's from the top of Israel to the bottom, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So he's not only been a priest, but he's become this prophet, someone through whom God speaks. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the author is setting up Samuel for us to see him as the protege, the kind of wonderkin to Eli. Samuel is the son, you start to realize, that Eli never had. Until we realize that, whoops, Eli had two sons. 
Look, if you would, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We're going to learn about these sons. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. See, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for themselves. And what was supposed to happen was the, the fat of the meat was supposed to burn off before a priest would eat it. So it was kind of an offering to the Lord. A tasty part of the meat was supposed to mean an offering to say, God, you get the best part of what we're offering to you. But that's not what happened, was it? All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's what they did to Shiloh, to all Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, hey, give the meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So he didn't even boil the meat. And if the man said to him, Let, well, look, we should burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not now, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. One of the themes of First and Second Samuel, if you ever read these books, wonderful books, one of the themes is comparisons. The author sets up a lot of personal comparisons because it's a big story. And we're finding out about the story evolving into God's kingdom from judges to the kingdom. And so, for example, Saul and David are compared together and we're meant to look at them side by side. David and Jonathan are compared. We're meant to look at them side by side. Eli and Samuel are eventually compared. And here, Samuel and Eli's sons are being compared in these chapters, chapters 2 and 3. And it becomes clear that Eli withdraws from his sons to make Samuel a son. Eli sees his sons going astray and says, you know what? Here's the son that I've always wanted, the one, someone I really can invest in, someone I see a lot of potential in, Samuel. And in fact, he calls Samuel his son twice. In chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 16, he says, my son, my son. Every man identifies a baby. He deems worthy of his investment. And too often, it's not our actual baby. It's not our actual child. There's an English-born American poet, right? Fancy that, right, Kevin and Megan? English-born American poet uh, named Edgar Guest. He was known as the people's poet in the early 20th century. And in 1923, he penned this wonderful little article about the father's investment in his child. And here's what he said. I have known a number of wealthy men who were not successes as fathers. They made money rapidly. Their factories were, were marvels of organization. Their money investments were sound and made with excellent judgment. And their contributions to public service were useful and willingly made. All this took time and thought. At the finish, there was fortune on the one hand and a worthless, dissolute son on the other. You know, when these children were youngsters romping on the floor... If someone had come to any one of these fathers and offered him a million dollars for his lad, he would, of course, spurn the offer and kicked out the prosperer out of his doors. Had someone offered him $10 million in cash for the privilege of making a drunkard out of his son, the answer would have been the same. Had someone offered to buy him the privilege of playing with the boy, of going on picnics and fishing trips and outings and being with him every part of the day, he would have refused the proposition without giving it a second thought. 
Yet that is exactly the bargain that these men have made and which many men are still making today. The first lesson is don't make that kind of bargain. It's a bargain we make without knowing it over time, over the years, as our kids become toddlers, and the toddlers become preteens, and teens become teenagers, and then they leave. And you realize the investment we made was not in our actual baby, but in our own baby, our own thing. That's lesson number one from the life of Eli. Lesson number two, engage with your child. Engage with your child at the first rumor. Look at me if you would at chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to read through verse 24. Now, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel, to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. The author gives us two very telling, if not obvious, details that Eli was, number one, very old, and number two, that he kept hearing. This idea kept is a Hebrew word, ma'od, which means literally muchness. So he was very old, and he had been hearing about this much. There was a greatness to it, a lot of hearing about it, and yet it is only at this point that Eli confronts his kids. There have been plenty of opportunities And now, of course, he's thinking like many dads often do. Well, it's too late now. Why stir the pot? Or I'm sure just everything will work itself out. But it's so important, guys, to to engage your child, fathers, at at first rumor. Not necessarily of, of wrongdoing or blatant disregard for God. He or she may not be culpable, but it's worth drawing them out. It's worth hearing their heart about why they're doing what they're doing. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, that the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but the man of understanding draws them out. And that's what we're called to do as fathers, as even spiritual parents, to, to draw out that child's heart, hear what they're thinking. This is where I find myself so similar to Eli as a father, that I'm too often reactive because I'm so daily passive. I'm too often reactive because I'm so daily Passes. Maybe you find yourself as a dad getting in the conversation too late, reacting to situations with very little information. Parenting requires that daily engagement. So you don't have to be reacting to every situation and kind of figuring things out constantly on the fly. Get proactive daily. It might be through like Christ-centered family traditions. This is something we did, especially when our kids were young. One of which, one of our favorites we did was in February, the month of love, And we would go out and we would make a gift for our friends. Each of us did. Katie did. I did. Gage did. Mason did. When we would take that gift to a friend. And we'd do it all together as one family. We'd hop in the car on a Saturday and we'd do it. Things like that have an incredible just impression on a child. To see that, oh my gosh, mom and dad, they care about their friends too. And they want to bless their friends too. Christ and her family. Or family worship every night. Or most nights when you can. Just a simple song you pull up on YouTube, a few Bible verses and a prayer with your child. Ten minutes. Helps to draw your child out. They will begin to ask you questions to wonder. Special time with them. Maybe it's a regular breakfast date or just special weekends with your child. 
I mean, I, guys, I'm mostly I'm giving you ideas, but I'm winging it too. Just mostly figuring it out along the way, trying to ask for good counsel, but mostly figuring it out. There's a, a great website you can visit for more ideas, familylife.com. And on that website, there's a good article. You can just search it, look under parenting. 25 things a dad should teach a boy. Example, there's, 20, there's, more, there's articles like that for a girl too. But in, I want you to, for a moment, envision the scenario that you might encounter one day, especially if you have more than one child. Getting called in because your child's in trouble and you have to say, hey, I, I hear you're, you're cutting up. I hear you're getting in trouble. What's up? How will you come into that conversation? Will you come into that conversation having invested in your child, having regularly been involved in their life? Because in that moment, when you ask that your child, what's up? What's going on? They will hear you to the extent that you've earned the right to be heard up to that point. They will hear you to the extent you've earned the right to be heard in their life. Lesson two, engage with your child at first rumor. Don't let it just pass. Lesson three, your parent doesn't ultimately, your parenting doesn't ultimately determine their destiny. Your parenting doesn't ultimately determine their destiny. Eli continues to confront his kids in verse 25. Look at that with me if you would. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And that ends Eli's sort of uh, monologue there. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So two truths are at play here in this little phrase. They would not listen to their father, for it was the father's will to put them to death. These two little uh, bits seem contradictory, and that is Eli's efforts in God's will. And, and parenting often feels like fate. Like you start to parent after a while, and you realize, oh my gosh, they are becoming like me. And I often see the negative qualities in myself and see that in my kids. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're becoming like me. Or as you parent, you realize, oh my gosh, they will not change their mind. They're just going to do what they're going to do, and it feels like fate. Yet over and over again, Scripture affirms not just the idea of God's sovereignty, but also our responsibility. It's both. Our responsibility and God's sovereignty. God has a plan, and we have a responsibility. You can read this in places like Philippians 2, 13 and 14, Acts 2, 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, that we are responsible to work, but God is responsible to work his plan. We work, and yet God does his thing. It's both. And sometimes we can't figure that out, but that is why God is God, right? There comes to a certain point where we can't figure out like, okay, God, you've given me responsibility, freedom, and yet you have this plan you're going to do any, anyway, and yet you command me to do things. I can't figure that out. I can't reconcile those things, but that's why he's God, and we're not. So I want to encourage those of you, to any of you who faithfully engaged your kids, you've drawn out their feelings, you've encouraged them, You've been faithfully there, quick to admit wrong and extend forgiveness, and yet your child has strayed. I just want to say to you, well done. And maybe no one has said that to you before. Maybe they've, they've sympathized with you at best, at worst, they, you, you know, they've secretly judged you because you weren't a good enough parent. But I want to say to you, well done, that, that you did your part. And the rest is truly up to God. There's your responsibility and God's responsibility. And for those of you 
who regret the mistakes you've made as a parent, and you worry that your mistake is going to affect the ultimate destiny of your child, I just want to encourage you that it does not. No way. First of all, God makes his power perfect in our weakness. That's how gracious he is. But, but mostly, God has a plan. He has a plan. You don't have to, to regret every mistake, every idle word you said. You just were withdrawn from them, those times you missed out on their special events. Or just those times you wish you would have said, I love you. You can ask God for forgiveness and move on, knowing he has a plan. And also for dads who say, one more thing, for dads who say, you know, it doesn't really matter if I show up because God has a plan. I want to challenge you to repent. To Repentance means literally change your mind, to, to turn the course and realize you are still responsible to God. He still has a responsibility, a calling on your life to be a father, even though he has your child's ultimate destiny in the palm of his hands. You still have that responsibility to your heavenly father, just as he has a responsibility to you and has so loved you. So lesson number three, your parenting doesn't ultimately determine their destiny. Lesson number four, plead and pursue even when it seems too late. Plead and pursue even when it seems too late. Eli is confronted about the destiny of his children. Look at chapter 2, verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli, that's a prophet, and said to Eli, thus the Lord has said, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not come up from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 34. And this shall come upon you, upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So imagine being told this. I mean, this must have been horrific to hear. What does Eli do? How does he respond? Many a person in the Bible has God's plan, often a plan that is hard to hear, revealed to them, and yet they plea with God for mercy. The, the prophet Joel comes to mind later in God's word, the prophet Joel, where God declares judgment on his people. And the next line, God says, even now return to me with weeping, with mourning, with fasting. And then the prophet Joel says, who knows? God may turn, relent, and leave behind a blessing for you. Because he is a God of steadfast love. So even though God has declared this judgment, plead with him, return to him, ask him for help, ask him for mercy. Eli hears this, this judgment on his life, on his sons, and he resigns himself. When the little boy Samuel repeats this judgment, look how Samuel responds, chapter 3, verse 18. So Samuel told Eli everything, 
and hid nothing from him. This was this judgment. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It is good. No, it's not. This is your, these are your children. Plead with God, Eli. Plead with God. Plead with God. God, let me return to you with weeping, with mourning, with fasting. But he doesn't, does he? He resigns his children to the course that they're tracking in their life. You know, my father is one of my heroes. And one of the reasons is that he pursued and pleaded with me when it seemed like it was too late. My teachers, I had coaches, I had even friends who, who just kind of gave up on me. And I lived my life when I was a young man, when I was a teenager, to be liked, to plead self, and I wanted nothing to do with authority in my life. I didn't want to listen to anyone. I wanted to do things my way. My dad, like Eli here, to be honest, was fairly negligent throughout most of my young life. I was growing up as a kid. He took extra business trips that he admitted later he didn't really have to, to, to Hong Kong and to Singapore to sort of get ahead in his career. But when he trusted Christ, things began to change. I and mean, he trusted Christ while watching me head into a tailspin of rebellion and just indulging myself. And so he repented, and he started going with me on father-son's trips. First, he found out what I liked. He cared enough about me to, to draw out, what are the things you care about, Ryan? What do you love? One of those things for me was golf. And so we went to this place called Warner Spring Ranch, and we got to do cool things together. And one of those things we got to do was play golf. It was in the middle of nowhere. There's no TV or media, although my dad and I snuck in a six-inch TV, a little six-inch TV with one of those old antennas to watch the NBA Finals together. Uh, partly we made a pact, secret from my mom, uh, just that we're going to bring a TV because we're going to drive each other crazy. And so we brought a little TV, and nights we'd watch basketball together. And I know that these trips were miserable for him. Uh, that was by design, mostly mine. <laughs> but he kept pursuing and pleading with me. I never forget on one of these trips him telling me, I take you on these trips because, not, because I want you to see that you are ruining your life. Forget me, forget your mom, forget your friends. Ryan, you're hurting yourself. And it took a lot of pursuing for me to finally hear one night in bed, God basically be like, you are ravaging your life. That's because my dad pleaded and pursued with me when it seemed like it was too late. We can do the same. Don't let it be too late. Now, Samuel and Eli, we've been talking about here. Samuel lived a far more noble, God-fearing life than what we see from his mentor. And yet, even while he witnessed withdrawn, negligent fatherhood from up close, he goes on to repeat these same lessons and serve up a few extra. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 15. 1 Samuel 7, starting in verse 15. And we're going to see how Samuel did as a father. We're going to read verses 15 all the way down to chapter 8, verse 9. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gagal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. There he also judged Israel. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. He built there in Ramah an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. 
The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they're doing also to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king shall reign over them. So lesson number five is stay near your child even if it tarnishes your reputation. So in a society, in a society where parents and children live basically in the same place their whole lives, this did not happen with Samuel and his sons Joel and and Abijah. They were judges 50 miles away in Beersheba. And what you're going to see is that Samuel wants his ministry to continue through his sons, but once that doesn't work out so well, he distances himself from them. Quite literally, he just moves away. Victor P. Hamilton is a wonderful Old Testament scholar. He notices this, and he says that Samuel resides in Ramah, while his sons are stationed at Beersheba, some 50 miles to the south, indicates something of Samuel's desire to distance himself from his crooked sons by putting them off in the boonies. Right, so I'm going to put you guys down here. I'm going to be up here. Because I still want to make my circuit every year. I want still people to, to know me as Samuel. The judge, the one who leads well. And if my kids are around me, tarnish my reputation. This is so tempting for us as fathers to distance ourselves from our child when they don't reflect well on us. And if you're blessed with more than one child, you'll find yourself wanting to identify with one and avoid sometimes the other. The one who doesn't necessarily behave or act or have the kind of success that you had. I want to encourage you, don't leave. Keep engaging, keep pursuing, keep pleading. When Bob was uh, 10 years old, he was a paper boy. And on one cold night, a strong gust of wind knocked he and his bicycle over. And he watched, Bob did in shock, as, as this bundle of newspapers started flying everywhere in this like 40 mile per hour, 50 mile per hour wind. And at this point, the boy had a choice. He could step up, do the right thing, collect all the newspapers, or he could go home. And he pedaled home. (laughs) He went home. And when he arrived, his father said, all right, son, get your coat and meet me in the car. They drove to the scene of this debacle, and Bob was relieved to find that none of the newsprint was any longer on the ground. So his dad parked, told Bob to follow him. They walked to a nearby house where a man greeted them and welcomed them inside. Bob was confronted when he got into their den with a surprising sight. Every piece of newspaper strewn out all over the floor. With hardly a word, the two men helped the boy piece together every piece of newspaper back together. And Bob proceeded to complete the paper route with his father as his father drove him around. Forty years later, Bob wrote about this lesson of finishing what he started in a tribute to his dad. But he wondered 
how his dad knew just where to go that day. I mean, he drove right to the spot, right to the scene of the crime. And years later, he learned that after the accident, the neighbor had actually called his dad to complain about your good-for-nothing son. And it would have been easy, right, when the dad received that call to withdraw or or to sort of meekly apologize or at best sort of make a, a weak defense of his son and hung up the phone. But the father decided instead to do the hard thing. Even when it might reflect poorly on his reputation, even though he wouldn't get to save face in front of this neighbor, he did the hard thing. He reached out to the neighbor and he conspired with him to teach his son a lifelong lesson. And it worked because the father didn't run from the son. He didn't withdraw himself, but he risked his reputation for the son. That applies for all of us. Even for those of us who aren't parents, when our kids do something rude or reckless to those of you who don't have kids, and they will at some point, maybe even after this church service, conspire with us, help us teach our kids a lifelong lesson. It'd be easy to just dismiss it. You can actually help us impress upon our children the need to take responsibility for themselves. Lesson six, your children need to see you fear God before favoring them. Samuel proves to be the very last judge of Israel. A judge was a a leader who helped decide internal matters, internal disputes for God's people. And among many judges, and there's a whole book dedicated to them, there had never been a hereditary judge. In other words, someone who was in the line, a son or a daughter, who became a judge. In fact, in Judges 8, Gideon, one of the famous judges, rejects this idea explicitly. He says, no hereditary judges. But Samuel wants his sons to succeed him, to follow in his footsteps. And he has the clout to do this because he's been the best judge ever in all of Israel. But because God is not calling his children to be judges, the power, the prestige of being a judge corrupts them. Men, you may be in a position of clout, a prominence to garner favor for your child, to put them in situations that really God's not calling them into, put them in situations of favorability when they don't necessarily deserve it. Fear God enough. Make, make God big enough to your children to say no to them, to, to let them go through some hard things, to not necessarily indulge their felt needs first. Samuel got out ahead of God's will, tried to help his sons, but because it wasn't from God, they suffered. Your children need to see that you fear God before favoring them. Lesson seven, we say we are helping our child when we're really just worshiping an idol. We see here, Samuel put his children in a position to carry on his ministry legacy. But we also get a couple of details that reveal Samuel's leadership and influence is more than just a legacy. It's an idol. An idol is anything other than God around which you build your identity and through which you get satisfaction for living, joy for living. If you read verse 5, look at that with me here in chapter 8. He said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. Now when they say this to Samuel, look how he interprets it in verse 6. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And he prays to the Lord. Samuel interprets what the people are saying kind of like this. Samuel, we are voting you, your position, everything you've done, we're voting it off the island. We want something completely different. And so Samuel prays. And if, if ever there was a time where God sort of rolls his eyes, like, honestly, Samuel, really? It's here in verse 7. Look at this. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of your people and all they say to you. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. 
They're rejecting me. But Samuel cared so deeply about his leadership, about how he was uh, seen, that it broke his heart. And God has to say, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And fathers, you have tremendous influence over your children. And it's one thing to steer them towards your favorite sports team or club and just enjoy that with them, of course. They're naturally going to love what you love, and you're going to love teaching them what you've enjoyed learning. And they're going to listen to you, even when they pretend like they're not hearing what, they, what you say. And my question for you is, are you serving them or really just teaching them your idol? Are you just teaching them to indulge and love the things and fear the things and make big the things that you love? That's lesson number seven. Lesson number eight, expect the neglect of your child to cripple your wider ability to lead. In verse four, we see the people reject Samuel as a leader because Samuel has rejected his responsibility to lead his children. And there's a reason why in the New Testament we find out to be a good leader in God's church, you have to be a good leader in your home. A famous 18th century evangelist named George Whitfield was once asked about the character and ability of a certain man. And Whitfield responds, they ask him, like, what do you think of this guy? And Whitfield responds, I don't know. I don't live with him. Because he knew the way that he led in his household, he would lead God's people as well. And many of you men wish to exercise influence to lead to make a difference. Are you doing so in your own household? I remember when I came to take up this post here in Grand Cayman, my pastor said to me, he gave me some great advice. He said, Ryan, you can always be replaced in the pulpit, but you can never be replaced at your dinner table. That's true for us as well, right? You can be replaced in your boardroom. You can be replaced in your office. You can be replaced on your team. You can be replaced in your Saturday foursome. Whatever it might be, you cannot be replaced at your dinner table. Finally, lesson nine. Find a father figure for yourself. The sad tale of Samuel is that his father figure failed him, but that's all that he experienced. And I know many of you have fathers who have failed you. Some of you have fathers who ignored all these lessons. Your dad had another baby in his life that he loved. It seemed like more than you. Didn't engage with you. He didn't pursue you. He didn't make God big. He didn't fear God. He was around you. Samuel repeated what he saw and what he experienced. Men, we don't have to. You can break the cycle. Before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for you. And the last thing that he prayed to his father was this. I have made you known to them. And Father, I will continually make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them. As we are going to learn next week about the love between God the Father and God the Son, but it's enough to know for now that such eternal, unconditional, powerful, pursuing, never giving up love is available to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By here and now, trusting your life to Jesus, you too can know the Father as Abba, as your daddy, as someone who loves you forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for examples, even negative ones, that we can learn from and grow from. Thank you for putting Eli and Samuel in the Bible, men who, who had very successful professional and ministry careers otherwise. And yet, in the walls of their household, things were crumbling because they were dads who didn't engage their kids, who didn't pursue them when things got tough, who put off responsibility, who had, who had another baby in their life, who didn't fear you over favoring them 
And God, I especially want to pray for all of the dads and all, everyone here who didn't have a faithful father, didn't have a father who was a good father to them. That absolutely breaks my heart. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you came to reveal who the Father is. And you prayed for us that the love that you and the Heavenly Father shared for all eternity may also be with us. So I just pray a blessing over every person here that that love would be present in your life today. The love between God the Father and God the Son that you too might know God as Abba Father. Pray this in your name. Amen.